Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, produced in the beautiful surrounds of Crawford School at the Australian National University. We're the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about our amazing range of short courses and degrees at crawford.anu.edu.au. Do check it out. There's something for everyone in there. And I'm delighted today to be joined in the studio by Quentin Grafton. Hello, Quentin. How are you? Hello, Martin. Very happy to be here. It's great to see you again. Quentin, of course, is a professor here at Crawford School. He's also the UNESCO Chair in Water Economics and Transboundary Water Governance. Now, before we dig into this week's pod, what's caught your eye in the world of public policy over the last week, Quentin? Well, certainly here in Australia, Martin, the issue in terms of the raid on the ABC studios, uh, seven and a half hours there by the Australian Federal Police, the raid on a particular journalist who works for News Corp, the issues about public interest in terms of whistleblowers. But this is not just about journalists and it's not just about people concerned about whistleblowers. To me, it's an issue about opening up uh, rather than closing down debates, having the sorts of open discussions that we need to have in a society. If things are going wrong, we need to know about it and we need to talk about it and we need to fix it. Closing it down, hiding it and put it under a, a table or in the far corner doesn't uh, doesn't resolve issues. It, in fact, makes them worse. So let's let's get this right. Let's the next parliament, you know, when they convene in, in July, do some action. That's less words, more action, I think, on this. Because the concern isn't really, isn't just the impact it will have on journalism. It's the impact it will have on whistleblowers, on sort of public discourse more generally, right? Exactly. People involved in public policy, uh, such as myself. But but it couldn't, shouldn't just be seen as those, uh, the, the, the people who are the, the so-called experts or the people who are the providing the voice of others. It's everybody. I mean, everybody wants to know if money is being wasted. Everybody Everybody wants to know if bad decisions are being made, not so that the culprit gets hung up, <laughs> it, but so that we can fix it. I mean, if you, I mean, we've gone through this in hospitals in the past. Okay, so hospitals in the past hid problems. They used to hide the statistics about certain surgeons, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The hospitals that got better were the ones that actually made it transparent what was going wrong, so then they could fix it. And that's the way we need to operate in terms of public policy in Australia, and not just in Australia, this globally. Sadly, there is this view that we need to close down thinking, close down discussion, and that's not healthy for anybody and not healthy for, for journalists, academics, and the person on the street. Yeah, thanks for that, Quentin. And if you're interested in hearing more about these issues, you might want to check out our other podcast, Democracy Sausage with Mark Kenny. 
It's out every Monday. And in fact, next week, they're going to be talking specifically about this with a couple of guests who are really well informed. So well worth a listen. Democracy Sausage, find it on iTunes, find it on Spotify and hit subscribe. You absolutely won't regret it. So what are your thoughts about the issues that uh, Quentin has just raised there, listeners? We're really keen to get your uh, comments and questions and feedback. And the best way to do that is to reach out to us on our Facebook group, which is Policy Forum Pod. Just jump in there, join us. It'll be fantastic to have you. And when you join the group, it will ask you for some suggestions about future podcasts that you might like to hear us make. And do please put your suggestions in there. We love it when you do, because if you do, uh, you not only have the chance to hear that podcast potentially being made, but you've also got the chance to win one of our very rare, very short run I got 99 policy problems, but a brew ain't one policy forum pod mug. They are a thing of beauty, aren't they, Quentin? Most certainly that, but also now becoming a collector's item. And does your tea taste a lot better drinking? Yes, it does, actually. Uh, Tea tea and coffee. Both tea and coffee are dramatically improved by a policy forum pod mug. Well, there you go. If that isn't incentive enough, listener, I don't know what is. Um, But that's just one of the ways that you can win one of these mugs. The other way is that you have five of your questions and comments read out on one of our podcasts. Now, that applies to policy forum pod. It applies to democracy sausage. So if you hear one of your questions or comments right now, all you have to do is make a comment under the post that relates to that podcast on the podcast group. Uh, So last week we did electric vehicles. If you had a comment or question read out on this pod, jump on the group and write in the comments section, question one, question two. Uh, And once you get to question five, we will send you one of these mugs. Some of you are already well on your way, actually, towards getting one of these mugs. I'm looking at you, Liam Hughes and Faith Gatchy. Well done to both of you. If you don't want to join us on the Facebook group, and I can't imagine why you wouldn't, you can also reach out to us on Twitter where we're Apps Policy Forum or go old school and shoot us an email podcast at policyforum.net. Now, let's dig into our podcast topic for this week because it's an issue that's very important to a lot of our listeners and very important to you too, Quentin, I imagine, because today we want to have a look at the issue of science policy under the new government. Now, Despite being a signatory to the Paris Agreement, Australia's government has really been dragging its feet when it comes to committing to reducing emissions and boosting renewable energy. And on top of that, the country has been grappling with the impact of things like the fish kills in the Murray-Darling Basin, which we've talked about on a number of occasions. Uh, At the same time, investment into research for science has been drying up. Australia's research funding is one of the lowest in the OECD, at only 1.3% of GDP. Uh, In stark contrast to this, in 2018, a national poll found that 90% of Australians believe policy should be rooted in the best scientific evidence available. But despite that, science policy was fairly well absent from Australia's recent federal election campaign. So today we really want to ask, why was science policy not a focus in the election campaign? And is there anything the scientific community can do to press the urgency of the issue and to get policy better informed by science. And we've got the perfect pair of guests to discuss this topic, haven't we, Quentin? We certainly have. We've got uh, Professor Ian Chubb 
former Australian chief scientist from 2011 to 2015. And for listeners who are from Canberra, he was the vice chancellor of the Australian National University from 2001 to 2011, and certainly a, a public figure here in Australia. Someone equally well-credentialed is Anna Maria Arabia. She is the chief executive of the Australian Academy of Science, and previously she was the principal advisor uh, to Bill Shorten. Yeah, it's a really fantastic lineup. And in fact, Ian and Anna Maria are two of the speakers at the upcoming Australian Crawford Leadership Forum uh, that's held here at Crawford School every year. It's an amazing event with an all-star lineup of speakers from all around the world discussing significant global public policy issues. And I'm delighted to say we're going to be working with the organisers of the forum to bring a whole series of podcasts featuring a number of the speakers. Uh, so we're going to be have some fantastic guests lined up and we're rolling these pods out over the coming weeks. So Quentin, I'm going to take the reins in this interview, but you will be back with us in part three, where we'll go over some of our listeners' comments and questions. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on that. But for now, let's turn our attention to science policy and meet our panel. Okay, well, let me welcome uh, Anna Maria to the podcast studio. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Ian, welcome back. Thanks, Martin. It's wonderful to have you both here. Now, I want to start off this discussion by looking at the recent federal election. Science didn't feature all that much. So what do you put that down to? Where was science in the recent election campaign? Perhaps, Ian, if I can start with you. Well, I think uh, the um, Labor Party put out a policy at the end of last year talking about increasing expenditure towards 3% of GDP and doing a review of research, which I was going to lead, and so on. So it started off well, but during the um, campaign itself, it didn't feature uh, particularly. I mean, there were comments about innovation and so on from from uh, various politicians. So it was there, but it wasn't one of the high points. And I suspect that it wasn't one of the high points because the 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 judgment was made that the public was not particularly interested in it and it wasn't going to change votes anyway. So so um, it's disappointing uh, because I did think um, that when um, Bill Shorten gave his speech at the Shine Dome talking about what the ALP policy would be, that it might actually provoke a sensible discussion about policy options because there are other ways of looking at the same um, rock and uh, and it didn't generate that in any significant sustained way. So that was disappointing, um, I think, uh, but in a sense it wasn't a surprise because when you look back at elections past, that's about where it's been. Um, the odd comment uh, or significant comments as was this case made early, a number during the campaign, but it never got traction because people were more worried about, you know, advertising slogans and, uh, you know, presenting things in a way as um, if you do this, then you should be, you should or you, or you should be frightened before you think about doing that or whatever it happens to be. And, and that took much of the oxygen out, I think. 
I think one of the ways we could also approach that question is, I agree with Ian when he says if you're looking for signals from during the election campaign that showed that there was a focus on those uh, creating an environment that would allow science to thrive, I think there were slim pickings there. There were some commitments made, but I wouldn't say it dominated the campaign by any stretch of the imagination. But when I think about it as um, looking for science um, and how it informed or should have informed a range of policy issues, um, science uh, was present, uh, but not articulated in that way. So when there was discussion around the Adani coal mine, when there was discussion about water buybacks, when there was discussion about climate change policy, um, there's an enormous amount of science in that. So when you're looking for science expressed differently and how it informs policy, um, uh, it wasn't as strong as, of course, the science sector may have liked, um, but there is certainly a scientific element that is part of that conversation. Um, should it be articulated more strongly? Should that uh, information and that evidence base and how it influences those policies um, be uh, more widely recognised? Absolutely. So we don't see that, but there's certainly science infused throughout the policy agendas um, and s some of which were presented at the election. But in a way, it goes back to something we've talked about a lot it, and on other occasions, and that is that we tend to take it for granted so it underpins everything we do. Correct. Probably pretty every day, pretty much every day, uh, including some of the policies as Anna Maria just described. But um, uh, we take for granted that it's there, and we don't um, really talk about how we protect the national capacity to sustain that um, evidence base for policies as they emerge. So. You know, we can't predict the future, but if we were to think about how we would protect ourselves from some of those uncertainties, then we might well do that by investing significantly in uh, key scientific disciplines to make sure that in Australia we have the capacity to adapt and adjust um, to whatever it is that comes along. Um, we shouldn't be expected, nobody should be, politicians shouldn't be expected to predict what we will need to be doing in twenty. 25 or 2028, but what we can expect of them is that they don't allow the basis, the foundation for what we might do to erode uh, simply because they think it's costly and they think it's, see it as a cost and not an, uh, an investment. So really, um, I think the, the I didn't find anything particularly novel in what happened recently, but the scary bit for me is that we do take it for granted. Um, we don't stand up and uh, as a community and demand that we build that capacity so that we can adjust to changing rainfall patterns and the agriculture that will need to change as a consequence of that. Well, we won't be able simply to decide what to do in seven or eight years' time without the work being done now to build up the expertise and the capacity that we need to adapt to that. Uh, should that arise, and if it doesn't arrive, that's fine. But we, but there are other things that will, and um, it's it's really um, buffering ourselves against those uncertainties that we really must begin to make sure that people fully understand, and not just take for granted that somehow you can turn on a tap and that will come a solution to a problem that arises in twenty twenty five. 
I mean, you talked about the importance of, of the community standing up there, but you know, science is really important to the community. There was a national poll last year that found that ninety percent of Australians believe policy should be based on the best scientific evidence available. Eighty percent believe the government should spend more money on science and technology. Um, but it's, it is largely absent from sort of public debate. What more can the community do to kind of drive that? Well, I think that they say that when there's a poll, but they don't say that when we have an endless debate about climate. Um, maybe half do, maybe 55% do, but it's not enough to push a government into accepting the fact that a 26% target is way too low if we are going to protect and preserve what Australia offers now to the coming generations. So we get an earful every now and then about intergenerational equity. We did 2013-14 when we were being told about debt and how improper it was to sustain today's lifestyle by racking up debt. Um, but it appears that we can sustain today's lifestyle by racking up CO2 emissions and, uh, and w when the ones come after us have to grapple with it we get told, well, you know, 26%, you know, we'll meet the target in a canter if we use Kyoto credits. Maybe people should recognise the fact that Kyoto credits are simply there because we were allowed to grow our emissions and we didn't grow them by as much as we were allowed to. So the gap between the two is counted as a credit. But we increased emissions and we still are. And the evidence for that is quite strong. But the counter-argument is this will cost you. And I'm afraid that when the thing is put to people like, if we have to do this, it will cost you. However much that might not be quantified, people get nervous. And so we get what we've got, which is an inadequate policy, where the science is pushing every which way but that, um, buffered by the fact that there are some people who will oppose everything. So, Anne-Maria, is it a question of economics will and people's personal view of their economic environment will always win out over these sort of strong scientific arguments for tackling climate change. I think whether it's applied to climate change or applied to mental health, uh, most people do recognise that scientists have some role and, um, you know, that policy should be informed by science and the statistics you uh, quoted earlier around uh, that recognition is there. I think the, the link that is not drawn is that um, when we look at the structure of the Australian eco economy and its move away from a resource-dependent economy to one that is more of a knowledge-based economy, um, that trend and what is required by policymakers, decision makers, a range of people, and then how that translates to the electorate. That link is not made uh, back to science easily. And so while, you know, you'll have plenty of people talking about trusting science and scientists and others, and indeed relying on science every day, um, and even un and, and cohorts of people understanding uh, that the solution to climate change will be science-based and it will be technology that comes from um, uh, basic this basic scientific endeavour, um, I think there is still a big gap between that thinking and how we structure an economy that is um, really builds the pipeline, whether that's the workforce and all of the incentives we need uh, to have Australia powered by a knowledge-based economy.
One of the complaints that I hear quite frequently in terms of the election campaign is around sort of communications and particularly in the sort of energy transition aspect of climate change where it's presented as kind of, you know, there will be this energy transition, we'll close down all of these brown coal stations uh, and people will lose their job but eventually there'll be this energy transition there'll be there'll be new new jobs set up in other areas is there a communications problem in terms of selling the benefits of science into the into the climate change debate yes there is but that has been born from in my view a very polarized environment within which we work so when you have different parts of the nation and indeed different cohorts who um, experience uh, that changing, the, the change in industries very differently. It's a very different conversation you're having with those different cohorts. I think there has been an attempt to speak about transitions um, to new, cleaner jobs, you know, jobs that uh, that have people involved in renewable energy generation versus working in coal uh, coal mines. Um, but but that that's a difficult conversation to have in an environment where it is so deeply polarised. It's often easier just to say, well, you know, can't this kind of climate problem go away. Um, that requires quite a nuanced and sophisticated discussion with a range of different people who are affected differently. And I think we all have a responsibility, whether that's the science sector, decision makers, unions, um, all parts of our of our economy, all parts of our society, uh, to engage in those discussions and quite genuinely look at what that transition looks like and what it means to individuals and their day-to-day livelihoods because people are affected by this. This is a kitchen table discussion. People need to work to have the dignity of work, to have income. So, you know, they become very granular, those discussions. So we do need to be having them at that level and in a nuanced way. Um, I don't think we do that well. And certainly in the context of an election campaign, there's almost no opportunity to have that detailed discussion. Politicians obviously don't do those types of conversations very well. They aren't making those kinds of uh, sales to the electorate. But is there more things that scientists can do to sell those uh, the the positive benefits of investment in science, Ian? Yes, I think that uh, although I think change is happening. So if I went back to when I was an embryonic scientist, um, speaking to the public about the work you did, meant that, you know, somebody would smother you in garlic and look for a piece of wood. Um, the, uh, uh, so fortunately, happily, that's changed quite a lot and we do see um, much more of people talking about their work publicly. Some of them, of course, will still cringe at the notion that the headline that somebody will put on is breakthrough or, you know, radical shift or whatever it might be. But I think that we are evolving a much more sophisticated approach as a scientific community to public communication of, um, of of science particularly and then of individual scientists and what they do. But the whole, I mean, for a long time I've argued that we don't have a particularly strategic approach to any of this. So we see it as a lot of short-termism. Science is the long game. I mean, if we, if we talk about... Um, let's say, zero carbon by 2050, then what we should be doing now is working out what to invest in so that as that drop from whatever it is to to 2050, 
uh, in 30-odd years that we can have invested strategically in different parts of Australia, different different sorts of skill sets um, to prepare people and so on and take a long run at it. Whereas, in, ten, in fact, what we will do is, um, you know, we'll all get shock when a coal-fired coal generator closes down because it's the end of its cycle. We've known how long since some of these things were going to be at the end of their cycle around about now. Um, and yet, yet, what are the preparations to the, the, for the community to adjust to the change for them as a consequence of this? So I don't think that we've been good at leading people with us along the path in a strategic way. We've tended as a community all of us, but we tended to say, everything's okay. Oh my God, we've got to do something about this and impose a, or inject a solution very rapidly. Whereas, you know, if, if, if your emissions target is, let's say, 40%, then the other 60% is the rest. And you've got to, you've got 30 years to reduce that to some other number that's agreed, maybe zero, but whatever number it is. You can do it strategically and you can invest in the communities that will be most affected by that if you start thinking about it now and not waiting until there's a crisis and then saying, now we have to react. And that's been the tendency, I think, in a number of these areas um, and is too much of a tendency. And I think people have a right to expect le better leadership than that. I don't think we have the leadership that takes us along that path. We have a political squabble over whether 26 is better than 45. And you mentioned short-termism there, and that ties in quite nicely with uh, one of the questions we've had from one of our listeners, the podcast. We've got a question from uh, Liam Hughes on our Facebook group. We're Policy Forum Pod on Facebook. Please do jump in there and join that conversation. And Liam asks, how do you go about convincing government to move away from short-termism for science policy. He references the basis for Wi-Fi was developed almost by accident, was not really commercially relevant originally. So how do you go about convincing the government to fund all science re research rather than that which it sees as sort of more immediately commercially uh, relevant? Perhaps my Anna Maria, I could turn to you on this. It's an excellent question and we unfortunately in Australia do get caught in the three-year electoral cycle and it is difficult for parliamentarians who do want to leave a legacy, who do want to um, do something with their portfolio um, responsibilities to do something immediately. I think there are examples though where we have had um, uh, initiatives that have crossed um, governments that have gone beyond the three-year cycle. Um, one that comes to mind is the Medical Research Future. Fund. It is designed to be long-term. It will, by definition, and I think in practice, um, absolutely survive potential future changes in government. It is designed to be strategic in the longer term. We could argue around the edges around how that could be improved, but that's about um, funding strategic medical health and medical research initiatives um, that are long-term. And that recognises that some of the solutions, whether that be in genomics or in other areas, do take more than one, two or three years to come about. Um, you know, equally, I could point to examples where uh, there have been initiatives that have absolutely not uh, survived three years, even within the one government. Um, and that's frustrating. I think one of the things that has been particularly paralysing over the last 10 years is the constant change 
um, in the science portfolio of science ministers, it makes it very, very difficult to build not just relationships, but to build policy reform and agendas. And I suspect that frustration is not just experienced by the science sector, but it's experienced by the changing ministers themselves who, you know, giving them the benefit of the doubt, I suspect they go in there wanting to achieve a lot and then uh, that opportunity isn't isn't there. Um, so that has been, I think, a particularly paralyzing environment that we've all worked in and therefore we've not been able to get some of that longer term thinking that your listener refers to and certainly policy reform um, going. And has it always been thus in terms of short termism when it comes to you know science policy, or is it has it has it become increasingly bad over the over the last decade or two? Well, generalising, Martin, because there are some good examples where you know, Anna Maria gave one another one you could give a, use as an example is the Cooperative Research Centre program. You know that's endured for thirty plus years. Um, numerous changes of government, even multiple changes of minister. Um, and it continues to this day and it would have continued, uh, it will continue and it would have continued had there been a change in government. So so it's an example of something that was designed for a purpose after a rocky start. It's settled down and works pretty well and people want to continue it. But generally speaking, it is short term. I mean, you know, I once tried to count I became a deputy vice chancellor in 1986, and I think in the 30 odd year, 33 years since then, there have been more than 30 odd ministers with responsibility in the area in which I've worked, either education and/or science. Now, I, I, I once gave a speech that um, ruffled the autumn leaves by saying that I could only think of three or four who actually wanted that particular job. A lot of them wanted to be ministers, but they didn't particularly want that. Particularly, they had no particular reason for wanting that job, and some did. And uh, and I know that there was a bit of a guessing game going on in Parliament House about which ones I meant at the, the time, a couple of days after the speech. But but generally, I think that's not an unfair comment. I mean, I think that that, that people, um, you know, people were appointed to the ministry. Um, some of them would rather be in some other ministry. Some would rather be a minister than a backbencher. Uh, some wanted that job. And they approach it differently. So how do you how do you get people who don't really want it to take a long-term strategic view of something that's not cheap? I mean, let's face it, it's not cheap to do and it's not cheap to do properly. One of the things that I think that we should be doing better than we do is learning from what is happening in the rest of the world. Um, we, uh, um, I, I think, uh, you know, you, you can easily get the response that, well, why don't we just wait till somebody else does it and we'll buy it off the shelf? That's not how much of the rest of the world thinks. And indeed, the Americans, again, who do, I think, this very well, um, uh, and engage public and industry and all the, and the university, all the research agencies all get together. And they just put out an American statement on innovation. And um, it's on one page. Uh, it's got, oh, I forget, six or seven points, key points that they believe are the government's responsibility to do. Um, so they're talking to the government. Um, of the day, whether it gets um, good ears or tin ears, I don't, you know, only time will tell, but they did it. They signed off by eight corporates, corporate leaders of big American organisations or former ones, and it, the statement was endorsed by 500 other agencies, American companies, small and large, 
universities, research associations, discipline associations, and so on. Back in 2001, I think it was, or probably 2001, John Howard, who was a, a good minister for science in the 2000s, indeed you could say an excellent minister for science in the 2000s, he wanted to spend some, had, had, they were developing a policy to put money in. Um, I don't know what I was at the time, probably something to do with the Vice-Chancellor's Committee, and I spoke to a businessman saying, can we get a, uh, and they'd written a letter, the Americans had written a letter to their president at the time, reminding him of government obliga obligation and their commitment uh, in parallel. And uh, so I asked a businessman here whether we could get a similar letter to support what the Prime Minister wanted to do. This wasn't actually saying to the Prime Minister, you've got to do something, you're doing that, whatever. This is saying to the Prime you want to do this and this is a pretty good thing to do. And two weeks later he told me he couldn't get one person to sign it in Australia. And so you think to yourself, how have we got ourselves into the position where this has always seemed to be somebody else's problem, somebody else's issue? We blame the politicians. We, we say the community doesn't understand us. We are also culpable. It may be that they don't understand us, but we can't assume that they should. We, we should be making the effort to get out there and talk in ways that are accessible, where you can be confident that the science you're talking about is good, but accessible to the public who are not science or not science trained, um, but who have an interest in learning what it is that we can do now that will secure in Australia for the generations that follow us and not just worry about how much is in our bank account or how much of a tax break we get. We do operate, though, in an era of sometimes kind of hostile social media. And it can be hard for scientists to be out there and arguing this case uh, you know, when they're greeted by a sort of wall of trolls. So how do we go about addressing that for scientists? How do we go about encouraging scientists to be out there talking about it, making the case for why this is important, making the case for tackling this kind of short-termism when, uh, when we're in this kind of uh, environment? Perhaps Anna Maria? I think that is that observation is spot on. There's a real conundrum we have where, uh, you know, social media, does allow people to have their views, even their own facts. Um, but if uh, scientists do want to engage in those forums, you're right, they are often met with, uh, you know, just vitriol. And it becomes a very, very... Particularly the women scientists. Absolutely. And not, not only... Um, uh, other groups as well. And it becomes a very discouraging and negative environment to work in. And most would ask themselves, why, why would I put my neck out there? Why would I even bother? The problem with that is then it leaves the space open for those who are vitriolic and, and, and want to, you know, I, I guess uh, the loud minority um, whose voice is even further amplified and that's um, counterproductive. I don't think we provide scientists institutions don't, and generally the system doesn't provide scientists with, I guess, the mechanisms to deal with that and how to um, actively engage in a way that isn't you know, almost soul-destroying. Um, I actually don't know what the solution is, but there is a void there. We are asking people to put their neck out and to um, be advocates and to uh, share their views and share their science, um, but we do need to equip them with uh, the skills or the resilience or whatever that is um, to not be advocates adversely affected by the uh, response they get 
and or we need to think about the way we communicate uh, with different parts of society where social media is, of course, a powerful and direct way, um, but not the only way. Ian, you've never been shy about sharing your views about science, both as a vice chancellor and as a chief scientist. So, I'm embarrassed now. <laughs> so what are, your, what are your tips for scientists as to how to go about engaging, getting those scientific ideas in the kind of environment that Anna Maria talked about there? Well, I, I mean, I acknowledge that it's tough, and it's really tough. And um, and as you would imagine, as a chief scientist, I experienced a bit of it directly. And nobody likes to be hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hated by people, especially ones you've never met and who would walk past you in the street rather than own up to the fact that they hate you face to face. So they hide behind something or other. Um, and, and it, it can be, it can be quite tough and quite nasty. And, um, I, I think, uh, but as Anna Maria said, I think institutionally we've got to support and encourage people to do that because uh, to get out there and, and, and talk in, publicly and and in an accessible way um, for a number of reasons, but and Anna Maria gave some very good ones, but other ones, you know, include the fact that the people that you're talking to are the ones who are paying your salary by and large, you know, if you work in a, in a typically Australian research environment. So there's a responsibility. There's though. a responsibility to go out there and I think you should accept the responsibility. We, we collectively have to accept the responsibility that we have an obligation of the people who pay us and from whom we want more money in the end when we will argue for what reason and so on, but from whom we want more, then they have, they have a right if they're interested enough to know what we're doing and to be explained to them in a non-patronising um, non-dumbing down sort of way where you can explain the science with carefully chosen words that make it accessible to people who aren't trained in the discipline as well as you. And I'm in that position. I mean, I'm not, I don't understand some of the science that goes on in Australia. And if I talk to a physicist talking about quantum physics or quantum number generation, which is my current fancy, then I like them to talk in terms that I can understand. Um, I don't like to be bamboozled by the fact that they know more than I do about something because I'm happy to concede that at the beginning. So you find a way of sort of, and then you support them. And we should have an incentive structure, I think, that, that, um, that encourages it. And I personally believe that the incentive structures that have been developed over the last 20 or 30 years, where, you know, publications in learned journals are important, where, you know, doing certain things, you know, getting large numbers of PhD students through and all the rest of it, the universities sort of doing their um, excellence and researches, all of those sorts of things, really actually um, make it more difficult institutionally for scientists to get out there and talk about the things in ways they would like to talk about them, but in a way that the public can access too. And um, I, I think it is a serious um, t a time for serious reflection on how well we encourage people to do it and how we support them, as Anna Maria said, 
um, how we support them when they do, and they're on the you know sharp edge of somebody else's um, uh, anonymous uh, um, 140 characters or whatever it is. I don't use it, you see, so I don't know how many characters it is. Partly I don't want to use it because I don't need to be bruised by people. Anna Maria, like that. Anna Maria, is there anything else? I mean, Ian talked about some great, great ideas that institutions should be doing to further support scientists with their sort of public engagement around science. Is there anything else that you would throw into that that they could be doing to further support that work? I completely agree with the notion that it is a responsibility of researchers to, um, I guess, illustrate the and communicate the outcome of their research back to taxpayers. I also understand that not all researchers um, are talented or desire to, to do that, um, but that's where institutions do come in and should be able to facilitate mechanisms to do that. Now, th that responsibility is twofold. One goes to almost an economic responsibility. You receive taxpayers' um, dollars and therefore you need to show what you're doing with that. Um, but it is also a way of translating what can often feel like, uh, you know, jargon or inaccessible science uh, back to the public in a way that brings them along on a journey um, to help understand the consequences of that research. And it goes back to a question you asked earlier, Martin, around um, how do we better communicate? I mean, part of that discussion has to be uh, uh, around, you know, for example, the ethical considerations of artificial intelligence, um, uh, what automation actually means and, and the positives of that not just job loss and therefore technology is 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 negative and therefore inducing a fear in the community. Um, so that communication back to the public, I think is critically important to um, bring them on the journey and to have them be in their own way and in their own language uh, advocates for science, even though they don't articulate it that way, but they have an appreciation of the outcome of that investment in science and the technology that arise, arises from it. At the end of the day, parliamentarians will listen to voters. And if voters aren't supportive of technology and however that is expressed, we have a, a an issue. Martin, one other thing that I would also suggest is that universities particularly, but probably research agencies too, although I'm less familiar, is that they remove every bit of hyperbole from the keyboards of their communications groups. And um, and when they put out a press release because somebody has done something interesting, they they carefully choose how they describe it and keep the facts. Yes, the facts are critically important. Um, explain why it's beneficial for that to have been done for the community. Um, it ought to be a chunk of what they're in any institutional press release. But, you know, there are certain words that, that should not be used unless they can be um, uh, adequately um, substantiated. So the, a word like breakthrough in 99 times in 100 that it's used is nonsense. It's a contribution to knowledge that eventually could lead to a breakthrough. And every con to me, every contribution to knowledge is important. Not every bit of contribution is a breakthrough. And you see too often in press releases, not necessarily the word, but the implication that this is what's happening. And I don't think that serves science well. I don't think it serves the community well. And it might, you know, a few people inside an institution might think it's wonderful. But generally, I don't think it's the right way to do it. So in terms of backing up the researchers, one of the things you could do would be to put out a press release, as I hope you would more often, 
um, choose every word carefully so that every word can be defended and 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 be careful about how you, you use um, hype. So I want to touch on a connected communication issue, which is sort of rise of anti-science. We've seen a lot of stuff around sort of anti-vaxxers, for example. Um, and in fact, in the election campaign, we saw a bit of that. There was a United Australia Party candidate spoke publicly about his dislike of vaccination. Clive Palmer declared his party was undecided on the issue. Where is all this sort of anti-science sentiment coming from and how do we go about tackling that? It's coming from various places. I think we live in an environment where, uh, you know, the, the internet and the world is awash with facts and everyone feels like they can own their own truths. And in that comes a denigration of institutions, comes a uh, an opportunity to discredit the evidence base um, and bringing down, the, I refer to those as pillars of democracy, is a very, very dangerous place for Australia to be in uh, and the world to be in. And, and it is a global phenomenon. Uh, that we see um, with amongst anti-vaxxers. We've seen it with uh, tobacco campaigns. We've seen it over the course of history. Part of it is um, uh, provoked by uh, the fact that scientists will never speak with 100% certainty. Um, they don't because a methodology of science means that uh, information is tested and tested again and continually refined. And what that leaves open is a slither of opportunity to seed doubt in that whether it's 1% certainty or any uncertainty um, by uh, whether it's anti-vaxxers or climate deniers and others. Um, so as a scientific community, we need to get better at communicating with um, society around, um, uh, I guess, the scientific evidence base. But that does not involve just presenting them with more facts and saying that those anti-vaxxers uh, are wrong because of these scientific reasons. And of course, they, they are and there are scientific reasons. But in my experience, you don't change behaviour by giving people more facts. Um, you change behaviour by appealing to people's value systems. And I think we need to get better as natural scientists working at working with social scientists. So we articulate our arguments more effectively and we can go about changing that behaviour. I think it will be um, a an environment we will continue to uh, operate in. Um, sadly, it costs people's lives. Um, not vaccinating your children or even not vaccinating adults means um, there are serious health consequences around the world for that. Um, so it is a very dangerous area, um, together with that broader environment I described earlier of, uh, you know, really discrediting the evidence base and institutions, which are critical, absolutely critical, if we are going to have um, policy informed by evidence and democratic decision making in this nation and globally. Martin, if you go back to um, the tobacco lobby back in the 60s, um, the records of a number of their meetings are online. You can get them. And one of them explicitly stated that you don't have to be right, you've just got to sow doubt. And what they were trying to do was to um, argue that there shouldn't be any legal obligations put on tobacco or restrictions put on the use of tobacco. And, and it sort of started... In, it, was, it might not have been the first one, but it's the first one that I know of where... The line was, you don't have to be right, you've just got to sow doubt. If you then go and look at lead in petrol to illustrate the point, then you find exactly the same thing. Uh, they didn't have to be right, they just had to sow doubt. And, and both of them were able to find a scientist or two, a small number, 
I'm not saying only two, I'm saying a small number, uh, who would argue that there was no evidence that lead in petrol contributed to um, uh, health issues in particularly young children. Um, you can go from there, you can talk about the anti-vaxxers. I don't know what their motivation really is, but but what it is is about sowing doubt about the efficacy and effectiveness of uh, efficiency of, of vaccines to control some major health issues. And um, again, you will be able to find a person superbly well qualified who will throw doubt on it. And indeed, one of them, um, you know, if you go and look up vaccination now, you can still find on the internet the paper that led to this business about autism. Um, and it comes up early, but you have to dig into it to find out that the particular individual was treated pretty harshly by the scientific community when the paper was found to be essentially fraudulent. So you go there, you've got the um, Cambridge Analytica saying it didn't matter as long as people believed it. Um, you've got a string of these things whether the aim, well, in the recent election campaign, death taxes didn't have to be right as long as people believed it. Um, and so there are a string of these things that have, that have sprinkled their way through. Every time you can find uh, uh, climate change, of course, you can find a small group of people who are willing to stand up and say, tobacco is good for you or it's not harmful. Whether they said it's good for you, I don't know. But they certainly said it was harmful. And I can remember in my lifetime images on TV of ancient people from somewhere in the world who drank uh, three bottles of spirits and smoked three packets of fags a day over 110. Um, and so therefore it could happen for you too. You don't have to worry sort of thing. So I think part of, as Anna-Maria said, people, people really can interpret some of these things in, in a particular way. And when scientists are prepared to say it is highly likely that, 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 that means that some of them say, well, they're not certain and others will go out and find somebody who says they're wrong. And so you, and you can do it. So, so we don't have a civil discourse about it. It becomes polarised, as Anna Maria said much earlier. And you have, I'm right, you're wrong, you're right, I'm wrong, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And a bunch of politicians who, for political purposes, will take one side or the other and not balance it off and think about, you know, how do we strategically place ourselves for the future? It comes back to the immediate. And, you know, we'll give you this, but you don't have to do that, or this will cost you a lot of money, you know. $5,000 a household or whatever it might be um, with some made-up figures. So so it's sowing doubt. And we've become – sowing doubt has become an art form. You don't have to be right. You just have to sow doubt in enough people's minds for them to say, I won't do that because it might not be good, might not be the right – might hurt me, might whatever. And, um, and sadly – where I, I mean, I can remember back when I was growing up, um, going to town hall meetings with prime ministers and so on and go to little town halls in various towns and, and, you know, engage with the hecklers and all the rest of it. But it was really about ideas. There was a contest of ideas. And I think we've lost a lot of that in the present discourse. Not entirely, of course, but I lost a lot of it. And we polarize and we sow doubt. And as a consequence of that, um, you get decisions being taken or, or decisions not being taken because they're too hard. Um, too many people might think, how can that possibly be? And you get away with it because there's no groundswell saying, hang on a second, we've got to get this. 
right, as right as we can get it, sometimes with imperfect information. We won't always have perfect information, but there are things that you've still got to do, even in that respect, because the consequences of not doing something are so dire. And to get to that point, we need a civil discourse, and sadly, I don't think we have it. Now, of course, one thing that can focus the community's mind on genuine scientific evidence is when some terrible disaster arrives at your doorstep. And over the last year, we have seen this the investigations into the mass fish kills in the Murray-Darling Basin devastating there. And scientists described it as like a coral bleaching event for the mainland. And uh, in fact, in the report put together by the Academy, Anna Maria, it uh, came to some sort of ominous conclusions about sort of water uh, levels in the Darling. And Maria, do you think the government's response was adequate in that situation? I don't think we've seen the end of the government response. You might recall that uh, the uh, fish kill report that the Academy put together came um, at the beginning of this year, not too many months out of an election campaign, or certainly the government was already in campaign mode. Uh, there was a parallel report that the government commissioned, uh, which uh, drew very similar findings um, to the extent that the terms of reference were similar. The findings were almost identical. There were issues that one report dealt with and the other didn't. Um, we have certainly seen a policy response uh, there by the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. We have seen some um, uh, expressions by the government around looking into um, uh, the Murray-Darling Basin uh, plan and how that can be optimised and improved or implemented in the way it was envisaged. Um, and then the election happened. So I think um, this topic will come up again. I think um, it will come up again for no other reason, sadly, than the likelihood of repeated fish kills is high uh, because if we continue with um, uh, the water allocations and, and buyback schemes and the governance of the Murray-Darling Basin system uh, that we have today, uh, that river is not resilient to further drought. And drought is a condition of Australia and it will happen again. So we, we're likely to see those scenes. There's no doubt that that, that those images um, of all of those dead fish spoke volumes to all Australians, not just the communities and the industries uh, that rely on the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. I mean, we all do. It's a food basin, of course, but even those more directly. Um, what was terrific to be able to do through that report was to bring together all of the different um, sciences, the social sciences, the humanities, the technological sciences, the natural sciences, and really involve the community in that report to look at it from different um, dimensions and really give a, a very real and human interaction between the science and, and, and the outcomes of the report. Um, so that actually has been a very positive outcome of our work uh, where uh, the communities in Menindee are being directly consulted in a way that they weren't before, um, that the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, well, the Aboriginal groups in that area um, uh, have also been involved in that um, policy reform or policy development process going forward. So I think there's more to be done. Um, I think, you know, water buybacks and, and the condition of the Murray will continue to be a topical issue and a hot issue. Um, but hopefully um, in speaking about those issues going forward, we can draw on the evidence base more and more. So we do need to draw this to a close. It's been a fascinating discussion, but I want to kind of put you both on the spot with the last question. We've got a new government in place, uh, fresh impetus potentially to uh, science uh, and science policy. 
Can I ask you both for what your a single key policy recommendation that you would like to see implemented by the new government? Perhaps Anna Maria, if I can start with you. Um, I would like to see a whole of government appreciation and implementation of a decision-making structure that sees the evidence base routinely informing policy. Now, of course, that's important for the science minister, but it's important for the environment minister, the energy minister, the health minister, uh, the water minister. The uh, You can see where I'm going with this. There is not a single portfolio that does not have an evidence base to inform its direction. I am realistic that the scientific evidence base will not be the only determining factor in policy decisions, um, but in Australia, it is largely um, absent in decision-making. We wouldn't dream of not assessing um, the economic impact or the doing economic analysis around a proposed uh, policy um, reform or initiative, yet we quite comfortably don't consult the evidence base in a routine way and incorporate that into decision-making. So if there was one recommendation I would have for a government who seeks to use the next three years and perhaps beyond uh, to uh, develop and implement policies that could have a genuine positive impact on this nation, um, economically, socially, environmentally and culturally, that is to routinely consult the scientific evidence base and have that inform your policy. Ian, I'm wondering if your recommendation, given the fact that you talked about 30 science ministers and such a high tenor, I wonder if your one recommendation might be keep a science minister in there for the whole of government. But uh, what is your your recommendation? Imagine you've got Scott Morrison's ear right now. I'm sure he's listening to <laughs> I'm the I'm sure he is. Um, well, I would uh, give Karen Andrews a long run. I think she's got a good chance of of, uh, and, and she certainly has a real interest in engaging us. Some stability at that end would be important with enough um, influence within the party and the parliament, so I'll get to my ambition in a minute, but to to make that real difference. So um, the, uh, as Anna Maria said, she's the realist, or she was being realistic, and, and I endorse everything she said, right? So I can be the dreamer. I, w- I would have a... Uh, whole parliament approach to the recognition of the critical value uh, of what we've been talking about and a coherent way to build a strategy that will endure beyond the life of a minister or a parliament, which is on average less than two years, um, and that we build up the capacity uh, across the board to deliver any of the uh, and handle as best we can uh, crises as they arise, but also crises that we could avoid by being smart, quick, um, and evidence-based. And I, and I think I think uh, that requires leadership. Um, I'm, I, as I say, I think uh, we should support a politician who wants to show leadership in this area, real leadership, not not sort of pretend leadership, but real leadership, and give them all the evidence they can, that we can muster to help them persuade their colleagues and their colleagues in the parliament that this is the right thing to do for this country and the generations that follow us. Because if we don't take the step soon, um, it will be too late to do it well. We'll, we'll muddle along and, you know, it'll be 
you know, can be pretty sure that Australia will be here for a while into the future. But how how good it is and how well it can provide for its citizens and its place in the world, not just looking inside but looking out as well, will depend on that strategic investment and it ought not to be a political football. That's a very important note to end on. I would like to take the opportunity to thank both of you for your contributions today. It's been a really fascinating discussion. I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed it as much as I have. So thank you very much, Ian Chubb, and thank you very much, Anna Maria. Thank you, Martin, and thank you to your listeners too. So stay with us, listeners, because in part three, I'm going to be rejoined by Quentin Grafton, and we're going to be going over some of your questions and comments from previous podcasts. But for now, let's hear what Mark Kinney has got sizzling on the hot plate. Hi, I'm Mark Kinney. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back and thank you once again to our fantastic guests today, Ian Chubb and Anna Maria Arabi. It was fantastic to hear from them. We are really interested, listeners, to get your thoughts on the discussion there. What was the key thing that you took from it? What questions did it raise? Uh, And the best way to do that is to jump onto our Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod, and carry the discussion on there. We would love to hear what you've got to say. Now, for the final section of the podcast, we want go over some of the questions and comments that you, our listeners, have uh, put in to us uh, about uh, both previous podcasts and about posts on our website, policyforum.net. I'm delighted to say that Quentin Grafton is back with us to go over some of these questions and comments. And the first one I want to have a look at is the podcast that we put out recently to mark Reconciliation Week. It was called Honesty is the Best Policy, and it had a fantastic interview with Professor Tony Dryce of the Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research here at the ANU. Uh, And in it, Tony talked about the sort of past, present and possible future of Indigenous policy. And we had a comment from uh, Neymar Lufti on Twitter who wrote, this is a fabulous pod. Uncle Tony Dreis, thank you for sharing Indigenous communities' voice. Starting with honesty and political leadership in policymaking are truly key. Moving to an integrated approach is necessary. I'm looking forward to hearing more on this topic. What do you make of Neymar's comment there? Look, I think it's spot on. We've got an opportunity in this parliament with an Indigenous uh, minister uh, on a federal level that uh, let's let's get moving. Let's uh, let's 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 actually get some action in the next three years, and uh, we've got the the opportunity to do this. Let's make it happen. As you say, Quentin, having an Indigenous minister as Minister for Indigenous Affairs is the first time that's happened, and obviously that sends a kind of optimistic note about some progressive policy in Indigenous affairs. But Australia's governments don't have a great track record in this respect. So putting aside Ken Wyatt's appointment and the obvious 
and the obvious optimism that that brings. Do you feel optimistic that the new parliament can do things that previous parliaments haven't been able to do in this space? It's always easy to get despairing when it comes to Indigenous issues in the context of Australia in terms of how governments have acted. And I think uh, Indigenous Australians, I'm not one of them, uh, have always remained hopeful and always sought a, a better future for themselves and their communities. And I think they have to adopt the same approach in the next three years. Uh, and I have that view as well. We've got to be positive. We've got to work with the minister, work with the people who are in power and have influence and help them uh, move this agenda forward. And there's multiple agendas. I mean, closing the gap is the huge, huge agenda. There's issues in the context of land rights. There's issue of water rights. And of course, then there's this indigenous voice to, to parliament. And so we have the Uluru Declaration. We need to act on that now. We've had enough time to digest it. <laughs> Maybe it was a big meal for some parliamentarians to eat. I think they've had enough time to digest that meal now. And now's the time to, to move in the next three years. It doesn't have to be next week, but it does have to be, I think, in the next parliament. And, and I think if they lose that opportunity, if they don't get action in the next three years, then I think people will start to say, well, you know, too much talk, not enough walk. Yeah, so thanks for that, Quentin. And thanks so much for your comment as well, Naomi. I'm really glad you enjoyed the podcast. Now, the next one I want to have a talk about is the podcast that we put out last week, which looked at electric vehicle policy. And it featured Liz Hanna, James Prest, and Michael De Percy. And on that, we talked about how, you know, there's this kind of revolution happening in the world of electric vehicles that car makers are pushing ahead, where there, there are certain countries in the world that are apparent ahead too, but policy in Australia is somewhat stalled. Uh, and we've had a lot of comments on Facebook about this podcast. I won't be able to share all of them, but I do want to just read out a few. Michael Hewitt wrote, electric vehicles will interfere with the kickbacks the government received from the oil companies. Peter Williams responded, the Victorian police started using Tesla Model S electric as a patrol car. That's a very nice car indeed. From last week, 550 kilometers on a single charge. And I can believe it can do zero to 100 kilometers an hour in two seconds. Feel the G-force, I imagine, in in that kind of situation. G-man when the G-force. <laughs> uh, Brian Gwina wrote, the only reason EV sales are up in Norway is because they're subsidised by the government to the tune of $500 million per year. They would be totally useless in regional areas of Australia. Graham Sweetman wrote in response but they would be totally suitable in urban environments. And finally, John Stevens wrote, I'm not interested because of the distance I live from my kids. It's no good setting up for Sydney and then having to recharge where there is no recharge station. I want to be able to drive in and fill up my 70 litre tank in 15 minutes to be back on the road instead of twiddling my thumbs whilst waiting for the battery to recharge. What do you make of all of those comments? There's uh, obviously a, a fairly mixed range of responses to the issue of electric vehicles. Look, I mean, they're all sensible comments and, and certainly personal perspectives. We need to have an infrastructure to support electrical vehicles. That's exactly what the, that the podcast was about. That requires recharge stations, but it also requires technological change. So batteries can be recharged very quickly not what they were a couple of years ago. So there's a whole range of things that have to happen and you have to get each part in place for this to really take off. But uh, we've got some time in the sense that uh, these 
forces, these processes are happening as, as we speak. And I would suggest that, uh, you know, we had this conversation in 10 years time, you know, in 2029, we'd be saying, well, <laughs> look at what happened in terms of electric vehicles. So, so I think it's going to happen. It's just the question we've got to, we've got to do the right planning and we've got to do the right investment. And that's both on the public side as well as the private side. And of course, consumers will need to buy the cars <laughs> and they're not going to buy the cars if they're, uh, you know, half, uh, half as much again uh, compared to uh, other vehicles. So, so they're, they're that's all part of what's going to have to happen in that transition. Yeah, that price point for electric vehicles is obviously really important. But I think John Stevens' point there about you know worrying about essentially kind of range anxiety, worrying that you know you have to recharge and then your car will just kind of conk out on the very long distances that you can drive in Australia from one city to another. But that goes back to that whole infrastructure thing, setting it up and making sure it's there and visible for drivers, right? Yeah, well, of course, you know, when we had the internal combustion engine, a century ago, uh, and um, and beyond, and, and the further in the past, then they we didn't have that that infrastructure behind it. That infrastructure developed over time, and of course, we can drive pretty much anywhere in Australia, as long as we make sure we fill up <laughs> before we get on certain roads, because certain roads it's, it's three to four hundred kilometres before the next uh, fill up at the next uh, service service station. So the same sort of thing in the context of uh, EVs. But of course, uh, it's going to happen first in the urban environment, and then it's going to go out and spread out uh, along the main highways, of course, and then beyond that. And th- that we'd expect that because most Australians live in the big cities. So that's where you're going to have that investment first, and then it'll go out. We just got to make sure that rural Australians who live in rural and remote areas, that they they also get the the infrastructure, uh, <laughs> including the, uh, the, 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 the net and everything else that they should be getting. Uh, that they also get the the necessary investment as well down the road. Yeah, so lots of great discussions there, lots of great comments. And thank you to Michael, to Peter, to Brian, to Graham, and to John for their thoughts there. And a big thank you to everyone who's commented on all of our posts and all of our podcasts. We really appreciate hearing your thoughts. And a reminder that the best way to do that is to jump onto our Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod, uh, or reach us on Twitter, where we're at Policy Forum, or drop us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. Now, while I'm here, I would like to welcome a few new members of our Facebook podcast gang. So hello to Shireen Lamand, Thang Du, Owen Lawson, Jane Alva, and Danielle Donegan. It's great to have you on board. Uh, and if you've enjoyed today's episode, then perhaps you might want to leave us a quick review on iTunes. It only takes 30 seconds or so. Just find that fifth star. It will be a huge help to us in getting the word out about the podcast. And before we disappear this week, I do want to say a couple of huge thank yous. First of all, I want to say a big thanks to Patrick Cooney for his excellent work, both in terms of the research and writing of the script today. Pat, you did a fantastic job. Many thanks for that. And also huge thanks to Lauren Barch, the organiser supreme of the Australian Crawford Leadership Forum, for her help in organising today's interview. But that is all we've got time for on this week's Policy Forum pod. But we will be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. So until then, from me, Marty Beers, cheerio. And goodbye from me, Quentin Grafton.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.